Welcome to Six Feet from Normal, a podcast dedicated to documenting just how drastically the COVID-19 pandemic has changed our lives. Brought to you by reporters at Medill News Service. I'm Alec Bose. I'm Joe Snell. And I'm Sarah Wilson. Our episode today is a bit different. We plan to examine how the journalism industry has changed in the past three months. Something close to heart as the three of us graduate into an uncertain field riddled with layoffs and hiring freezes. Instead, however, we look to a much more important story, the recent Black Lives Matter protests. I can't breathe! I can't breathe! As hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets every day to demand justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and other Black Americans killed by the police, we felt a responsibility to lift up the voices of those on the ground. So this week, we spoke with community organizers, a public health expert, and an on-the-ground photojournalist to get a better understanding of the intersection between protest and pandemic. Let's get started. It's really important for people to be able to safely protest. I really support the right of people to do that, and I want to keep people safe. And I would say... If a federal government really cared about its people, they wouldn't be sending in military right now. They'd be sending in people to help keep protesters safe. Looming over the protests is the very real threat of COVID-19. Sarah and I spoke with Dr. Ingrid Katz, a physician trained in infectious diseases and also an associate faculty director at Harvard Global Health, about the risk of protesting during a pandemic and how people can best protect themselves. This episode we're dedicating to the demonstrations and the protests that we've been seeing for the past week. So we just wanted your insight about, you know, whether or not it's possible to protest safely as it relates to contracting COVID-19. First, I want to be clear that I support the protests and protesters, the, the peaceful protesting of racism. I think that white supremacy is a lethal public health issue, and that predates and contributes to COVID-19. My deepest concern is in the response to protesters, in the violent response, whether that's arrests, whether that's um, chemical sprays that inflame the lungs, whether it's just herding people together into much smaller spaces than they should be. I think that is what concerns me the most. And I'm particularly concerned for the African-American community who are putting their lives on the line when they're going out there to protest because they're already disproportionately impacted by COVID. In terms of safely protesting, I mean, I think a couple things. One is, thank goodness, it's warm enough that protests can be held outside. And I think there's a huge difference between outdoor and indoor exposure. I just cannot state that enough. Outdoor exposure at a distance with a mask on is a much lower risk than indoor exposure. So I put that out there because I do think that there are absolutely ways to protest peacefully and do it safely. But obviously people need to be wearing a mask and need to be able to maintain distance. And the thing that has concerned me is, I've actually seen a lot of mask usage, but I I haven't seen um, as much of the safe distancing between people that I would love to see people be able to have. This speaks to the need for police and cities to allow people to protest safely while maintaining distance between each other. If you want to allow people to protest in your city, which I do support, you need to give them enough space to be 
distance from each other and, and not just give it to them, but promote it and encourage them to take that space. I think the question of eye shields has come up because there's clearly transmission that occurs through the eyes. And when you're in a high risk indoor situation, I absolutely recommend face shields or eye shields, not just regular glasses, but actually real eye protection is, is an additional layer that people could take if they are really concerned. And, and I would really caution um, people who are already in high risk groups. So elderly people with chronic lung disease, or any other chronic health condition to weigh carefully going into big crowds right now. The last thing I'll say that actually I have not seen reported anywhere, maybe because of the nature of um, the topic is use of public restrooms and aerosolized feces. And I say this as an infectious diseases physician who talks about things like feces because <laughs> we have to, but if you have people congregating for hours, there's almost always porta potties and public facilities that people are sharing. And that is actually the spot where I'm most concerned because most stores are closed off. You're pretty much relegated to a porta potty at this point. Obviously, I would definitely wear gloves and I would limit your time in there as fast as you possibly can because I do think that actually could be a big source of contamination. And even with gloves on, when you get out, take off the gloves use your alcohol wipes to get your hands as clean as they can. Obviously don't touch your face um, after using a facility like that. So that's, if there are hot points in these protests, I would actually say that might be one of them. Just to clarify and kind of synthesize what I heard, you're saying that the actual act of kind of congregating outside isn't necessarily dangerous. It's the police moving people into one small area, such as, you know, a prison or even just pushing people into one area on the street or the tear gas or other irritants that could exacerbate the respiratory aspect. Yeah, exactly. So recognizing the need for safe protests right now, police and cities need to make a plan. They need to be able to say, okay, we can have X thousand people in this space, we need to give them a wide berth. We need to give them as much space as possible. Ideally, if you were really protecting your protesters, you would have someone actually stationed at all of the porta potties disinfecting them between usage, um, you know, in a hazmat suit. That would be the disinfector, not the protesters, but someone who was really able to effectively clean between people or have some technique to really limit people's exposure. But if that is not possible, which I have not seen in any city, then people need to, to be mindful. And I can't stress this enough, COVID is lethal. It hasn't gotten any less lethal in the last few weeks, even though I fully support these protests. Dr. Kess, just a, a bit of a follow-up on that. Does the sun mitigate any of the dangers? My general feeling, and I've said this to lots of people, is outdoors are your friend. And I think just because you have the natural ventilation system of being outside. I think in general, seasonally, the trend will wane in the summer because people are outdoors more and they're limiting their indoor exposure. But we've seen COVID surge in places that are warm and have a lot of sun, you know, in Singapore, in other places. So I just, I haven't seen enough concrete evidence yet to show me that being out in the sun automatically reduces your risk to COVID. It's the 
natural air circulation that exists outside that's actually protective in terms of circulatory effects. A few Sunday shows this past week talked about how these protests might create new chains of transmission. Could you kind of explain what that means? Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, you know, there's so many things that are happening right now that are going to influence the curve. I mean, a lot of states were moving to reopen before any of these protests started. And I think the more you, that people come together, the more that this curve is going to start to go back up, right? So here in Massachusetts, while we, you know, we had a fairly effective response in terms of real social distancing for a prolonged period to the point where we, we turned the curve and it started to trend down, although I would argue there was a fairly sustained plateau of cases for a long time. As soon as we flip that switch and you say, okay, people are going to be allowed to start to come back together through work and other places, that is going to increase your number of cases again. It, it, it's inevitable. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. The reason that certain states felt like they could do that is because the cases were trending down enough that you know, you wouldn't overwhelm a hospital system if the cases started to trend back up. I think the second issue is really the background rate. And I think there's no question the background rate matters in any of these circumstances, right? So if you have people protesting in rural Maine and the background rate there is super low, your chance of increasing the number of cases of COVID are actually relatively small because the number of people in that crowd who might be harboring COVID are relatively few. If you're having a big protest in the heart of New York City, you know, the chances are higher because there's been so many cases there. And I think part of the challenge that we've faced as a nation is the completely inadequate response of this administration to this pandemic. From day one, they fell behind. And the longer you stay behind on testing and identifying cases and quarantining, the um, greater your risk of exponential growth. You know, I'm convinced that we are just so sorely underestimating the number of people who are harboring COVID. And I think part of the challenge with this not only is the lack of testing at the, you know, at the beginning, and still I'm not convinced that we have the most accurate tests available. And then I think um, the second thing is the asymptomatic uh, nature of spread with COVID. So we know if you combine both people who are asymptomatic from COVID and people who we would call pre-symptomatic, so people who haven't developed symptoms yet, but will go on to develop symptoms, you're talking about maybe at least 40, 45% of people with COVID. That's a massive number of people. And we know that, that people who are asymptomatic still are infectious. In other words, you may be walking around with no cough, or no fever, but you are absolutely still infectious. And so how do you wrap your arms around that? If you're doing you know, things like temperature checks and screens in advance, you're not necessarily identifying every case. Uh, Dr. Cass, how has protesting affected testing sites and tracking individuals who are exposed to the virus? I think if cities really wanted to support protesters, they would be ramping up testing on site. I mean, first of all, we would need effective point-of-care tests. I don't feel that the point-of-care, at least the salivary tests, which is really what you would need to get quick results, because it's a nasopharyngeal swab. Believe me, I'm in expo- I've had one. 
because I was exposed to someone and it is not pleasant. You are not going to be doing that on a mass scale. So you need effective salivary point of care diagnostics. Like if you really wanted to do it safely, if you were like the ultimate safety person, the mayor of city X, and you said, I want to allow protests in my city, I will spend whatever it takes to ensure that people can safely protest. What I would say is you would want to give people a wide berth. You would want to be able to provide point of care testing, um, which is what a lot of companies and schools are talking about for reopening is can we provide frequent and regular testing for people? And I think the same would be true in a protest situation is you could provide point of care testing to allow people to know and even do symptom checks, you know, on a perimeter before they would enter like a very big open space. But there's no way people are going to do that. I mean, first of all, the protests just happened really quickly. Cities were underprepared. Second of all, you know, we barely have adequate testing in places as it is, yet alone for this surge, right? So you, my feeling has been throughout this is presume COVID until proven otherwise. So that means you take personal precautions and you protect other people including, you know, from your own potential for COVID. So if you've been out protesting for days, make sure you're still wearing that mask. And again, I don't think that outdoors and indoors are the same. But if you had an N95 mask, that's certainly more protective than a surgical mask. But obviously, N95 masks are have predominantly been for frontline healthcare workers. And, you know, I'm, I'm still not totally certain that there's adequate availability. I am not convinced every place in this country has adequate availability of PPE at this point. Is there anything else that you want to add that we didn't get a chance to talk about? I just want to be clear, you know, I'm, I'm a public health advocate. I'm an infectious diseases physician. And I still feel that it's really important for people to be able to safely protest. I really support the right of people to do that. And I want to keep people safe and cities and the government need to invest in that. And I would say that it's a huge burden for cities to suddenly have to imagine keeping thousands of people safe when they've been generally under resourced to respond to this, cities and states. If a federal government really cared about its people, they wouldn't be sending in military right now. They'd be sending in people to help keep protesters safe. Well, Dr. Katz, thanks so much for speaking with us this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. Empower DC is a community organizing project that works against gentrification and housing issues for low-income individuals in the nation's capital. Since COVID-19 broke out, however, the team has pivoted to mutual aid projects. We caught up with community organizer Jonathan Huto to talk about what justice looks like for both frontline healthcare workers and frontline protesters. Uh, yeah, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being on with us today. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you both. So we're curious just to learn a bit about the community efforts um, you and the organization were kind of engaging in before, you know, COVID-19. Okay, so Empower DC, um, which began in 2003, Empower DC is short for the DC Grassroots Empowerment Project. At the base of our work, 
is the work for housing, real affordable housing, uh, parentheses around real uh, affordable housing, livable housing, sustainable housing, housing as a human right for all human beings. Uh, in Washington, D.C. specific, that's where we work, but connected to the struggle uh, for adequate, livable, sustainable, real affordable housing for all human beings throughout the world. The base of our work is with the most directly impacted folks, folks who are being hit the hardest in the city. So our efforts uh, took root in places like Barry Farm, uh, which is a public housing complex where we fought and organized with tenants in, a, in an attempt to save Barry Farm. Uh, we're fighting with public housing residents uh, throughout the city and Greenleaf and Southwest and Park Morton and Northwest. I'm glad you touched on that point. Um, so black D.C. residents make up about half of the city's population, but represent 80 percent of the COVID-19 deaths in the city. Um, how has this informed Empowered D.C.'s approach to organizing and protesting? And what are some of the challenges that come with that? Well, in the spirit of the Black Panther Party for self-defense a generation ago, uh, in order for our people to thrive, we're gonna to have to be able to survive this crisis. And so one of, the, one of the things that we've done organizationally as an extension of uh, division of our executive director, Paris and Arusi, is we pivoted uh, towards mutual aid. We're doing direct mutual aid on the ground in Ivy City as we speak. Every Wednesday and every Saturday, uh, we're now at a capacity where we're getting out over 100, over 100 plus boxes of groceries from the Capital Area Food Bank to our most directly impacted folks. We're also uh, adding within that operation green produce for our people. And so what we've had to do is we've had to pivot. We are an advocacy fighting organization, but within that advocacy and fighting, we know that our people have to survive. And in order to survive, you got to have the basic necessities. And so to the degree that we have the capacity to, to get those those necessities to our people, that's what we're going to do coming out of this, this, this crisis, the ashes uh, of this crisis. We've got to get a shift, um, not just to reform the system, but to transform it. This is a moment here. This doesn't happen every 10 years, every 20 years, right? Yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, so we're wondering kind of to what extent y'all have been a part of, you know, the recent protests. Now, organizationally, um, we have not uh, been on the ground within the recent protests as an organization. However, uh, as an individual, you know, I'm an organizer, period. I've, I've been on the staff of Empower DC for almost two years, uh, but I cut my teeth as an organizer uh, recently with uh, other fighters and advocates. We brought together uh, a demonstration, a very militant, bold, but yet a peaceful demonstration in Southern Prince George's County in a neighborhood known as Eastover, um, bringing some heat um, to the county, to the county officials. Uh, Prince George's County, Maryland, has been notorious uh, in its uh, police brutality and just brutality, period, in relationship to its African-American citizens, specific to those communities in southern Prince George County, Maryland, they're border the district. Some of the things that you're seeing on the ground as far as people protecting themselves and kind of adhering to safety measures, are 
to the extent as they can, are people social distancing? Are they wearing masks? In terms of our mutual aid support work on the ground, uh, we are seeing uh, people, regardless of what is being said in the mass media, who are social distancing, they are taking the necessary measures. Uh, they are wearing masks, need more access to masks in the, in the belly of the Black underclass. So that's why we're on the front line. I mean, the, the, the need is immense, but the resources are scarce. It is our oblig- we have a duty and an obligation to engage in this hour. I believe it was Franz Fanon that said that every generation out of relative obscurity must realize its destiny, either fulfill or betray it. And at the end of the day, we're not who we say we are, not what we profess, not what we aspire or even hope to be. At the end of the day, we are what we do. I'm tired and exhausted right now, even though you all can't tell. I have no uh, mercy, if that's the right word to use, no mercy. I have no mercy for anyone right now who's an organizer, calling themselves an organizer, calling themselves an actor as an organizer, and saying, I can't get on the front line because I might catch COVID. The people are, are, are catching COVID. So if you're a fighter, you got part of solidarity is risk-taking. That's part of solidarity. If you can't be a risk taker, then don't be an organizer right now. Find something else to do. What are some of the challenges of pivoting to that mutual aid that you're providing on the ground now? Since that's what Empower DC sort of main focus has been on since um, sort of the start of the pandemic. Yeah. So number one, you got it. You got it from a, just a practical standpoint. You got to keep a core of volunteers engaged and motivated. You know, um, you you've got your fire has got to be twice the fire of the people because because ultimately the people are going to feed directly off of you. You know, so your fire got to be lit and it light others. So that's that's and that's a constant challenge to keep yourself motivated and keep yourself inspired. You know, it's going to require some proper rest, proper eating. It's a, it's a good amount of heavy lifting that's going on. Like yesterday, I mean, we dropped 32 boxes from the Capillary Food Bank. Each one of those boxes probably weighed about 30 pounds. You know, we're climbing upstairs. We're knocking on doors. It's physical labor. Um, but this is this is what we do. You know, it's, it's a labor of love. And so the major challenge for us um, has, just, it has just been just to maintain the, the, the energy. But once, the pe- once you see the people responding, once the people come out, then you get high on the people, as, as the late Fred Hampton would say. You know, we get high on the people. The actual payment, the payment itself that the organizer receives is in the doing. It's in the actual doing. And in the doing and doing the good work and seeing the faces, the people saying, God bless you. Thank you. With the tears in their eyes. because. We're somebody's hope right now, you know, and where government fails, it has failed. Let's just be clear. When the people in the streets, that means the government has failed. That means any form, as, as the late George Jackson said in Blood in My Eye, he said before one can even begin to postulate revolution, that all forms of redress has to clearly have broken down in the minds of the people. So what's happening is redress is broken down. Any notion that the government you know, can actually solve these problems is broken down. That's where we come in. We have to be in that gap. 
We have to stand in that gap to make sure to the best of our ability that our people can survive. And if we can survive, we can also win. You know, of course you said that, you know, if you're a fighter, you know, you also have to be a risk taker, but there are people who are choosing to stay in um, because of COVID and, you know, not go out right now and demonstrate. How can these people still kind of participate in the movement? If you kind of had to distill one or two action items for them, what would they be? That's a good question. Uh, for those who cannot be frontline fighters, and, I, and in terms of organizing, there's, there's uh, at least from my vantage point, my orientation, and there's three levels. You, you have frontline fighters, you then have supporters, and then you have well-wishers. So for those who are, are not willing to take that risk, because the front lines are always the few. If you are a supporter and you're in your home protecting you, your main focus is protecting yourself and your your nuclear family. Um, you can uh, make a donation to any one of the organizations. You can certainly donate to Empower DC. Other than donating, you can also do advocacy online. Uh, you can lean in on your elected officials. But then also what I would challenge people to do who are at home at this hour is to engage in some political education. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate like everything that you said. Like this was really enlightening. Thank you so much. All, All right. right. Th- thank you. Yeah, you, have, thank you, so you have a good one. Tatiana Shanti is usually an actor, but when protests began flaring up across the country this weekend, Tatiana used their skills as a stage manager and producer to organize a protest near Chicago's Northside CTA Red Line. They said they had never organized anything over 100 people, but on June 1st, nearly 5,000 people showed up for the protest. Tatiana spoke with Alec about their experience organizing the protest in reaction to such a large turnout. So Tatiana, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining me. Um, I'm good. I, I'm kind of like all over the place. Uh, since the protest, I've kind of like focused my efforts on jail mm-hmm. support right now and like helping those who've been arrested for protests, like get out of jail, get legal help and like medical help and attention if they need it at the moment. Thanks for jumping right into it for me. Um, <laughs> can you take us, you know, back to the story about what you organized, the the sort of uh, movement or uh, effort that you organized on June 1st, uh, which was a few days ago. Yeah. So, like, I really just kind of did it impulsively (laughs) Um, the day before, which please, please never, ever try to organize a protest the day before. But I also was like under the impression that like 50 people would show up. Like I've never had to organize an event for more than like, I think like 100 people. So I was like, okay, yeah. And then like about 5,000 people showed up. I've never really organized any events like this before. So I'm I'm an actor. So I've organized like a lot of theater stuff before. And I've organized, I've produced like shows for like uh, POC at my school and like stuff like that before. And I've never organized a protest before. I was just like very overwhelmed. And then I kept getting like a lot of messages from friends and strangers being like, hey, I, c- I could connect you with this person. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. And so I was 
reaching out to everyone, whoever I could from people that I trusted and then was like talking to them. And then I like had a group of people I had never met just like helping me like behind the scenes who like have done stuff like this before, like helping me behind the scenes, um, just trying to, uh, trying to like figure things out in like less than 24 hours, you know, getting people, safety people there, which like we really didn't have the necessary precautions that a protest should have there. Overall, it seems like it, the, just the idea of organizing this so quickly, um, even that in and of itself is overwhelming, but you know, you talk about some of those safety things that you feel were lacking. Can you talk about that and what you feel like you wish was there? I wish I had like official marshals, you know, maybe not necessarily like I didn't want to work with police at all. Uh, I feel like that contradicts the whole event itself. Um, but I wish I had like official marshals um, made sure that like I reached out to legal aid in time and to have legal observers. I knew that there would be street medics there, but like I wanted, I should have like touched base with them. I wish I had gone through and a local organization or like a couple local organizations to help like co-sponsor it or to like just be there with them to organize it just because I think that's more important than just one person organizing it. I'm noticing like a lot of the protests in Chicago are just organized by random people who just want to start something, but they don't really, they just like say meet here at this time and like that you should never ever do or go to because that can put people in a lot of danger because like there's no organization, there's no one sponsoring it. And then you don't know where you're going and like anything like there's no plan. And like, that's how it can end up being dangerous. And I think too, that's where a lot where you see like a lot of, um, like early violence in the protests. Like if you notice, like if you see like the violence during the daytime, um, I feel like those might be coming from just random people creating events. Um, And then if you notice like the ones that are like actually peaceful during the day, um, those look to be like organized by uh, actual people who have a set plan. And I'm saying during the day because like police are being very violent at night trying to enforce curfew and it's not the protesters. You've seen this as something very interesting that you did, but you also see it as a learning experience. Can you talk about some of the other things? Because I'm sure a lot of people after this are looking to get involved and maybe even looking to organize something like you were doing. Um, Can you talk about some of those things that, you know, pieces of advice you have for people who want to do that? Yeah, I actually, I've um, had people kind of like reach out to me and like ask that. And I'm just like, here are a few things that I would say, um, I said, one, do it through local organization. They will have the resources to get legal observers, street medics, and other precautions to keep people safe. And they'll also have connections like around the city um, for whatever you need. Make like a Facebook event and communicate to people constantly by posting. It keeps them like excited and active about it and um, makes them feel safer that they know that they're in good hands. Um, three, have a clear mission about what you want and keep stressing it when you post it. Like my clear mission was that I wanted to keep it peaceful. And I was very specific about 
my wording because I knew we were coming to an all white neighborhood. And I think this was like going to be the first time in Chicago um, during these protests that it was going to be coming to like a majority white neighborhood or majority of like gentrified neighborhood. And I knew the second my wording was going to get messed up was going to, I could possibly like have had it shut down. So I had to be like very, very careful. Uh, Let people know the route later on. Because um, if you release it to the media, it could put people in danger. But like specifically for these kinds of protests. Um, uh, five, tell people what they can do from home if they can't attend the protest. A lot of people are like, what can I do? Like, I'm immunocompromised right now. Like, I can't be out there. I don't have the resources to get out there. What can I do? You know, tell them to donate. Tell them to watch. Tell them to share. Tell them to t- tell their friends. Um, you know, however they can get involved. Well, you know, this is a podcast about how the world has changed since the outbreak. And mm-hmm. although this isn't a normal time in terms of protests, protests have been um, protests, yeah. organizing and activism have been a part of the United States literally since the founding of the country. Um, so yeah, in that sense, because the pandemic has changed so much. I mean, you've t- you touched on a couple of those things, but in the future, how do you see this form of activism moving forward? And how do you see people, how do you see it changing should the pandemic last longer than a few months? Maybe it goes into next year. Yeah, um, I was watching CNN last night and I think someone brought up a good point because they were asked about this. Um, someone asked, like, do you think more people would be out in a pandemic? And the guy said, he said, no, I think that, like, there are a lot of people out because we don't have to work. Like, we don't have anything to do. And we believe this cause is important enough to go out there and, like, risk our lives and our health and safety to fight for what we believe in. Um, And I was like, yeah, that's right. And so, like, I am worried about like what's going to happen when, you know, we start going back. Um, So I don't really know how it's going to change. I hope like people keep supporting. I don't think protests is like the only way. I think that there are more important things to be doing too. I think, you know, we need jail support. We need people to help with cleanup. We need people to help with like food banks and food distribution to like communities that need that at the moment. Um, and we need people helping like our homeless population right now. Like they're getting swept off the streets with, um, these curfews too. And it's like, they don't have a home to go inside, um, right now. So they're getting caught in the middle of all of this police violence too. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. No, thank you so much for reaching out to me. As a photojournalist, Medill Masters candidate Colin Boyle is used to being in the middle of the action when he covers events. That was certainly the case this past weekend when Colin was on assignment for Block Club Chicago to cover the city's downtown protests. But some of his reporting techniques had to change in order to follow health guidelines. Colin spoke with us about how he approached covering the demonstrations during the pandemic and also why he felt that it was still important for him to get into the action and tell the story. Colin, thank you for joining us today. 
Um, we've just got a, a couple questions to ask you about some of your reporting. Uh, first, can you tell us a bit about um, your reporting from the protests this weekend for Block Club Chicago? Certainly, yes. I'm a, I'm a local Chicagoan, and I'm also a contributing photographer and reporter for Block Club Chicago. Um, and I was on Friday night originally. I wasn't even assigned originally to cover the protest, but I can't just sit at home and be silent. I can't just sit at home and not be present in these moments of history. Uh, so I went down on Friday night originally and was there uh, up, up about until 11 p.m. Uh, reached out to my editors at Block Club Chicago and ended up doing some interviews and reporting and making visuals until about roughly 11 p.m. And then I went back again on Saturday uh, in the afternoon, again, doing photos and reporting as well. So I was interested um, because we've seen a lot of um, uh, instances of abuses against the press. Um, and so what sort of precautions did you take before going downtown and covering these things? Yeah, so unfortunately, I may, I've been made acutely aware of just the wrongdoings that the police have been doing to every citizen in the country, not just the press, whether it's the murder of George Floyd, Laquan McDonald, uh, the list goes on. But as a journalist, especially when your job is literally to be a firsthand witness and uh, be an essential worker in these uh, daunting times, uh, I definitely fear for my safety and the safety of those around me. So one of the few things, one of the many things I did in preparation was I reached out to multiple journalists that are my friends in the area, uh, checked in on them, checked in on where they're going to be in case one of us needs each other. I also, you know, I, I worked in Argentina last year for my journalism residency and experience in, you know, reporting in conflicts where moments get tense between protesters and the police and the press. And, you know, I took my experiences there from there where there were police and riot gear every day that I was covering. So I took the experiences from there and compartmentalized it in my process of getting mentally prepared for going to report, you know, if I, should I need it, I brought a helmet. Should I need it? I brought a respirator. Obviously I wore a mask, um, a normal mask for given the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, I wore a mask, wore gloves, kept my gear sanitized before and after uh, each assignment. I had goggles on just uh, that were clear so I could still see, but, you know, protect myself from any spittle or uh, liquids uh, just from passing the disease or in the off chance that we were gassed, which when I was present, that did not happen. But I'm uh, aware that it happened uh, after I left on Friday and Saturday. Can you talk to us a bit about what efforts you saw on the ground of organizers taking precautions to make sure that protesters followed any kind of pandemic guidelines as much as they could? It was beautiful what I saw Friday and Saturday. I saw protesters walking and being stopped by their colleagues with a box of gloves or masks or water or snacks and just being like, hey, put these on. Hey, if you need something, we've got it. And I'm in a Facebook event page right now for a protest that happened last night and people are still posting and they're saying, hey, comment if you need any medical supplies, comment if you need a safe space or um, someone to look out after you, or if you need a ride somewhere, uh, it was, I, there was a sense of camaraderie that I recognized, uh, during the hours that I was at these protests and it was really powerful to see. And for the most part, people were, were wearing masks, uh, when they could. Colin, did 
the coronavirus guidelines force you to adapt your coverage in any way or how you reported on the events? Yeah, you know, um, I try and stay as wary as I can um, and safe as I can. But obviously, it's in moments like these, you have to act with what you've got. So I, you know, when I could, when my gloves, I had a pair of medical gloves on on Saturday, and one of them ended up ripping in half. So I, you know, tried my best to stay sanitized and whatnot. But, you know, I try not to touch anyone as best as I can when I was reporting and which is really tough, right? Because you're it's so close and you're in such close contact. But, you know, asking for like phone numbers to call follow up after, you know, if they if you need more time rather than being exposed directly for so long um, is one of the ways that I practiced um, the guidelines of the quarantine and the and this pandemic. But it definitely is it's difficult, especially when you're on the front lines there trying to tell the stories so that you're your audience doesn't have to be there, right? You know, as a journalist, your job, your responsibilities and the privilege of being a journalist all the time is to inform the public. And that responsibility privilege is heightened exponentially during this pandemic because some people are not comfortable being present. Some people are not comfortable being outside right now. So you, it's your job to inform them on what's going on in their communities visually and through reporting. And as a journalist, I'm ready to adapt to whatever means are necessary to still inform, still get information, but also keep each other safe. Thanks for tuning in to Six Feet from Normal. We really hope you enjoyed not only this episode, but the podcast as a whole. This is the last episode from the three of us as we graduate, but stay tuned for other audio stories from Medill on the Hill. Be sure to check out our website, covidanalyzer.nationalsecurityzone.org, and our social media accounts at Medill on the Hill for more coronavirus coverage. Thanks for listening. I'm Alec Bose. I'm Sarah Wilson. And I'm Joe Snell. Take care and stay safe, everyone. Thank you.